the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hi, friends. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm, a show about entering into the mess and the gray. And if you've been listening for any length of time, you know that Brian and I often will disagree or even change our opinions over the course of a nine-minute segment, which is kind of fun. It is fun, although I was listening to our show. I listened to it back the other day, Yeah, and I was like, that's like three segments in a row. I changed my mind. <laughs> what people can't see is that I'm like waving like a Jedi mind trick in front of your face every time. I came across as like the person who has no idea what he thinks about anything. Nah, and, we know that's not true. We know that's not true. Well, but, Ian, tell me what to think about this. Uh, that's a, that is a dangerous invitation. You don't want that. Yeah. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, or wherever you get your podcast. And this article that I found in a lot of ways, I think kind of encapsulates a little bit of our heartbeat for this show because we've talked about the need to create space, how we just seem to be shouting like louder and louder at each other, either physically or on social media. The chasms just seem to be widening. So what what does it look like to actually lean in to maybe, you know, listen to actually understand and not just listen to respond? And uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote this article on Crossway, and the headline kind of says it all. It says, don't mistake your passion for theological precision. Mm. And the first line, I think, is killer. He says, caring enough to be careful, which I don't know that I would necessarily identify like our online rhetoric as careful, but I'm curious, uh, what, what do you think about this article? Uh, I loved it. I'm, I'm, I really did resonate with it because in the social media age that we live in, it's all about takes, right? And I do like that he framed this from a theological side, but this is across the board everything. <laughs> like, what do you mean? We, uh, this is this could be written to people about politics. This could be written to people about theology. This could be written to people about uh, medical things. Right? How many times you've been on Facebook and people are lecturing you about like, <laughs> here's what you need to do, or about parenting styles? Right? His point being that just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean you know uh, that you know stuff. And when it comes to theology in particular, that's where it gets dangerous. And that's why I like that he focused in there. Because just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean it's theologically true. But oftentimes on social media or from pulpits or on podcasts or on radio, the, the louder you are about something and the more, the, the more convincing you are, and you could be leading people down the, down the uh, wrong path. And so I really enjoy that he's saying, you know what? Before you are like, hey, this is how it is, whether it be about theology or politics or medicine or whatever else, like make sure it's something that you have a little bit of expertise in. And I don't mean expertise like you've got a doctorate in it, but you've maybe done some reading and some thinking about this. 
because you could be influencing people's thoughts, and that's a that's a really dangerous thing. Yeah, and I think it, it isn't even necessarily that you need to do research. I think yeah. the amount of times people have confessed sharing an article that they've not even Googled yeah. to see if it's true. Like I have, so two of my brothers are actually really, really good at this at um, not only in their own posting, but in calling other people like, hey, the thing you just posted is actually outright false. Yes. And the person usually will comment like, oh, I didn't, I didn't check that out. Like nope. you should check that out before you put, like, I don't like to your point, you're not asking for a, a doctorate level education, but uh, putting some effort towards at least asking, is this even true? And he, he says here kind of halfway through the article, he says, we live in an age where passion is often considered an adequate substitute for precision. Mm. And again, he's like a preacher. So I, you know, yep. I love the alliterations yep. and all that. I think there's so much wisdom there that as long as someone's passionate, um, then there has to be we, – we feel this instant need to give credibility to it. I will offer a counter-argument, though, to myself because I do think sometimes this pursuit of precision is useful in some context and not in others. Like I wouldn't mm. look at a painting necessarily and say, what's sure. the precision of this painting? You're like, no, this painting is just moving. Uh. This song – like you think about you know artistic precision and in, you know, musicality, there's uh, there's musical precision. But on the other end of it, sometimes it's not about accuracy. It is about, yep. uh, oh, this does emote or this does convey something that I find to be compelling. And I don't always know that precision is the thing to go after, but I think his point is well stated that um, we need to be, I think, careful collectively as a people to be mindful of the stuff that seems like, Oh man, this uh, as long as I'm loud and yelling and passionate, yeah. that's that's good enough. And it doesn't mean you can't have an opinion, but just own it as an opinion. So like even if it's a Facebook post, right, or a tweet or something, just be like, "Hey, this is what I feel about this, but hey, anyone else have an opinion about this?" You know, I'd love to, it, it doesn't mean you can't dialogue, but it's it, so oftentimes we like to think that we are authoritative about everything. Hmm. And so we're like, "No, this is how it is." Uh when really it, it, it's probably much more of an opinion or or worthy of a discussion. And I think his um, his point is good for us. Like, you know what? Care enough to get the details, to have the conversation, to have the thought before speaking authoritatively on things. Yeah, and I think uh, what you said about owning the fact that, hey, this is conjecture yeah. or this is opinion or even this is preferential. You know, I hear people all the yep. time like rather than saying uh, drums are from the devil, <laughs> what if we said hey, it's not my preference to have that kind of instrument yep. in a worship service. Like that's that's fine and I think we do need to have like conviction uh, about specific things but yes. I, I often feel like sometimes we confuse preference with doctrine that if I feel it really strongly then therefore it needs to be elevated to the level of doctrine. I think it's perfectly fine to feel things deeply yeah. and to also have the wherewithal to say, you know what? One, I might be wrong on this. Yes. Two, this might not be universal. This might just be more of a thing that you, you know, you, you like Pepsi and I like yep. Coke. And, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I think if everyone could lower their blood pressure yes. and just shrug their shoulders a little bit back and forth, maybe, uh, maybe the world would be a happier place. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, we have an interview that I am personally really Me excited too. about. Comedian Michael Jr. is on the phone. He's doing a show at Willow Creek this Sunday. And uh, we're really excited, not just to learn about his comedy, but to learn a little bit more about his story. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook. 
Facebook.com, is that right, Brian? That is Facebook. where it is. The dot com. <laughs> the, the dot com at uh, the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. But I am thrilled to have on the phone, honest to God, one of my favorite comedians, Michael Jr. Michael, welcome to the show, sir. Yo, thanks for having me, man. For real, we say one of your favorite comedians. Look, I mean, give it time. Hold on. Like, like I'm still, know. I'm still new to this game. I don't know what I'm doing. If Jeez. I, if I had introduced you, it would have been here is my all-time favorite comedian. Uh, okay. See, I believe in being honest on Christian radio, and uh, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to level with you. Well, part of the reason we're having you on, you can learn more at MichaelJr.com, but he's actually going to be at Willow Creek this Sunday, uh, from six to seven thirty p.m. Which I got to be honest, man, this is the weekend. After Easter, what's it like to follow the resurrection, like as a performer? That's got to be a lot of pressure, isn't it? Well, just the way you said it is a lot of pressure. <laughs> now he feels pressure. <laughs> what am I supposed to do now? Jesus is risen now. Now. Michael Jr. What? Like, what? Like, <laughs> I really like imagining Nobody's that. Nobody's going to go to that. Like, like that's the scene of the resurrection. Like, you thought that was great. Check out this comedian. Yeah. I, I come out on stage. I come out on stage like, give us Barretus. I don't know. That, whatever that dude's name is. <laughs> no. Oh, this is so good already. All Bar- right. So here, here's the Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. Bar- yeah, it's not even in English anyway. Here's, yeah, here's a question that I've, I've yeah. wanted to ask you for a while. Uh, because I, I love following comedians and I love but all sorts of different... there were 67 people in front of me. <laughs> Your top five. How about that? Top five. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious because I... It's worse now that you... It's worse that you quantified it. Oh, it is worse. Great. As soon as I heard it leave my mouth, you're right. You are definitely his favorite comedian that he's ever interviewed. How about we go there? That's definitely true. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so here's what I'm curious about because, uh, and I'll just admit this on the air, like not all the comedians I listen to are clean. Uh, I think people assume that pastors like only listen to G-rated stuff, but like I, your stuff, I mean, I've straight up bogarted some of your stuff in sermons. Like I think I think that you are incredibly clever, but I'm curious what what's it like in the comedy game, but also like being like a pretty well-known Christ follower. Like have there been hurdles that we wouldn't imagine as a part of that or opportunities or what, just what's that been like being like a Christian comedian, like a Christian artist in that, in that field. Yeah. You know, what's cool about it is I, uh, because people know how I get down. So I still perform at clubs and stuff. In fact, I was at a club in Los Angeles recently. And, um, it's funny because when you get alone with some of these bigger names, they start asking questions. Mm. They're like, so, uh, Hey, what, so tell me about Jesus. I'm like, what? Mm. What, do you, what do you mean? Tell you like, they, they say stuff like explain God to him. I'm like, explain God. I can't explain just straight God, up like that, the last kid? Just that explicit? Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. One in particular, and I was like, and I would explain to him, and, and one of them, there was a, uh, this guy wasn't a comedian, as an actor, I won't say his name because what he was doing. I'm literally in a green room with him, and we're having a conversation, and he starts talk, asking about God, but there's women feeding him grapes. <laughs> right before, like, I'm like, dude, are we going to have a conversation? You were on tour with Kanye? <laughs> and he said, okay, okay. That's hilarious. <laughs> like, grapes? Anyway, so... So he was like, okay, okay, check it. How about this? And then the, the, the girls leave it over. And he, he said, how about this? How is it I can do all of this stuff that I'm doing and you still tell me, and people still say that Jesus wants a relationship with me. And, I, and this is what, the only thing I can come up with was this right here on the spot. I said, God is kind of like a navigation device when you're in a car. If you punch in the coordinates and it says go 10 blocks and turn left, then you go 10 blocks and turn right. It doesn't abandon what you're supposed to do. Mm. It recalculates what you need to do to get to where you're supposed to be based That's upon good. where you are. That's good. Only problem is if we keep making the wrong turns, road conditions may be different. They may be rougher, and you're running out of time. 
So you have to be sensitive to listen to that voice. You can make the right choice about what you're supposed to do. And, um, and then, so that registers with some people. Like I got some stories of some, in fact, I don't even like, it's some really cool stuff that happened simply because I'm open and, or some people don't even know that I'm a Christian comedian. They just know, like, I remember the first time I did an event with Chris Rock, we were at the comedy store on Sunset Trip and, um, we had never met before. I go on stage before him and then, uh, he goes up on stage and has a great show he comes down and we're talking. He's like, man, that's real. That was, I've never met you before. That was a really funny set. We're talking for about 15 minutes into it. And he gets this look on his face. And he's like, wait a minute. And I was like, what's up? He said, you didn't curse, did you? <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I don't. No, I don't really. I don't curse on stage. And he was blown back by wow. the fact that I didn't curse. And he was like, man, I didn't even recognize that. So <laughs> it's really kind of cool to be able to stand with with cats like that from from a comedy perspective yeah and they not even notice the difference so that's pretty cool that I'm is kidding. i'm wondering just the process of becoming a stand-up comedian like is this something you knew from an early age that you wanted to do and what's been kind of that process for you uh, over the years of kind of making this your career oh yeah i didn't know what straight out of high school people would ask me so what are you going what you going to do after high school i was like i'm about to go make a sandwich <laughs> like like, I didn't have any plans at all out of high school. And then I'm at a movie theater with my friend. And the, uh, we're watching the movies, at, like, literally the day after graduation. And the screen goes blank. And my friend dares me to go tell a joke in front of all these people because a projector messed up. And I go up on the stage. And, I, and the only joke I knew was a dirty joke. And I wasn't a Christian at the time. But I made a deal, <laughs> I made a deal with a friend that we wouldn't curse anymore. So I had to rewrite this joke in my head as I, as I walked down there. I had to completely rewrite this joke. And I present this joke in front of these 300 moviegoers, and everyone laughs. And I feel this high for the first time mm. ever in my life. I've never mm. done drugs. Uh, I had some NyQuil once. <laughs> <laughs> once, just once. <laughs> so so, so uh, all these people laugh, and then I go sit down, and security comes running in to kick me out. Mm. They're like, hey, where's that young man? Where, where's he at? We're going to kick him out of here. And this lady who I don't even know stands up. It's a white lady. She stood up, and she said, if you kick that young man out, I want my money back. No wow. These bikers with long hair and tattoos, the whole theater stood up and came to me. Now, I was blown back by this. Now, in retrospect, I can clearly see it was God giving me a glimpse at what he called me to do. Yeah. But I used to think, literally, up until last year, I thought it was just a glimpse of God showing me that he wanted me to make people laugh. But what he's really showing me is he wants, he asked me to make people laugh, but also to bring people together in a, in a different way. So when I do comedy, it's not just jokes. Mm. We're doing way more than just funny. Like I want people to, I'm actually called to comedically inspire people to walk in purpose. That's what I'm called to do. I love so that. the comedy show that they'll see at Willow Creek, it'll be, when you come to Willow Creek uh, Sunday night, it'll be funny, but there's always 3% of something extra because while I'm on stage, I'm listening in between the jokes and asking the question, what can I give to this audience? Mm. And there's always something completely unplanned it blows everybody back, including myself, and that's what people take home with them in a huge way. Sometimes to the point where they take action, and we get letters, and some really cool stuff happens. So that's I'm excited awesome. about the show on Sunday night. All right, so that that's actually a perfect segue because I've I've been working on this premise for like a decade now, and the 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 idea that I've been working on is that. Uh, comics are like modern day prophets. When I look at like the prophets of the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, there's you possess a capacity to see the stuff, even the stuff that's like really common and ordinary, the stuff that everyone in the room is like, oh, I've experienced that and illuminate it in a new way. 
Um, and what you were just talking about, about it not just being funny, but like moving to action. Like, do you in any capacity see your role or the role of the comic as in some way prophetic or in some way pastoral in that you're like inspiring and stirring people to not just laugh and go home, but to actually like see themselves in a different light, see God in a different light, to live in a okay. different way? Okay, so here, here's what here's what I've been doing lately. Here's the dialogue God gave me. So the way comedy works, and you may have seen me talk about this, and I may do it Sunday as well, but the short version, the way comedy works is there's always a setup and there's always a punchline, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I've known this, you know, ever since I've been doing comedy. I mean, you know that even if you don't do comedy. But what, the setup is when a comedian makes his audience think in one direction. The punchline mm-hmm. is when he changes the direction in a way they're not expecting. Mm-hmm. And then when you catch on to this change, those, the results are laughter and it's, it's because of the revelation. Well, God has shown me that life is the same way. There's a setup and there's a punchline. Hmm. Your setup is about what you have received, but your punchline is about what you're called to deliver. Hmm. You're married, you got a house, you got this degree, you got this, this, but very few people understand what their punchline is, what they're called to deliver, hmm. which is some of the stuff we'll go through on Sunday night. Hmm. So I'm on stage in Nashville and I'm doing comedy and I'm listening in between the gaps of the jokes. While people are laughing, I'm actually listening. What can I give to this audience? And while I'm listening between the gaps, I clearly feel like God says, hey, bring that lady up on stage. Wow. I don't know this lady. <laughs> I work alone. Like, she don't look funny at all. Let me just throw that out there. Like, she just... So it doesn't make sense for me to bring this lady up on stage. Yeah. And as upon further observation, she's deaf. No, like, she, the, she, The sign language lady is talking to her, and I'm like, okay. But I'm, all this is going through my head while I'm presenting a joke to the audience. So I'm like, I can't bring, she's deaf. I don't know any sign language. Only sign language I know is a thumbs up and another one before I was a Christian. But I can't do that. <laughs> so, so I don't know any sign language. So I got to bring this lady up on stage. So I do another joke and then, I, and then I finish the joke. People laugh and I point to the sign language lady. I say, hey, can you, can you ask her? And I point at the lady. Can you ask her to come up on stage, please? I don't know why I'm bringing her up on stage. The audience don't know why. It's 2,200 people here. The show is sold out. And she's walking up, and the place is silent. Wow. We were having a great show. So I said to the sign language lady, impromptu, I said, can you ask her what is her biggest need? Mm. And the crowd is still silent, and, and, and she signs over, and the lady signs back. And the sign language lady says to me, she, she says she doesn't have any needs. She's, she's okay. And I was like, nah, ask her again. <laughs> so, we, so she asked her again, she, and she signs over, and she signs back. She says, well... Her and her husband haven't been able to go on vacation in over 13 years, mm. not even not even for a weekend. Now, listen, normally what we do is we'll collect a bunch of money, put it in a hat, give it to her. Yeah. But we've all seen that punchline before. Yeah. And money isn't even a punchline. It's just a result of using your setup. Mm. So all I did was ask the next question. I said, well, well, why not? So she signs over, signs back, and she says, well, uh, it turns out they have a special needs child. And they can't afford a nurse who's qualified wow. where they feel comfortable and they can actually go somewhere for a while and, and enjoy it. I was like, okay. And listen, I turned to my audience. I don't know. I don't live in Nashville. I don't know these <laughs> people. There's 2,200 of them. I turned to my audience and I said, where is the special needs nurse who can deliver their punchline? Wow. And the room is still silent. We're all in shock. I'm tripping and I'm saying this stuff. Yeah, right. And so I have to say it again. I said, where is the special needs nurse who can deliver the punchline? And you hear a voice come from the top balcony. And this lady says, here I am. 
No and kidding. She comes walking down, and we introduce them, and they live like 30 minutes from each other. Oh, my goodness. And the whole room is done. <sighs> like, everybody in the room is done. Wow. All I did was listen in between the gaps, and somebody showed up with their setup, willing to deliver their punchline, and someone else was willing to receive it. And nobody in that room is going to forget that story no. anytime soon. Yeah, no kidding. But had we just showed up with some money, if we would have just showed up with some money, then right. we would, I wouldn't even be telling that story. Yeah. But we went a little deeper, and that's what happens at these events. All I'm doing, though, just for your listeners who can't even come to the show or if it's sold out or whatever the case is, all I'm doing is listening between the gaps. No matter what you do in life, there's gaps. Mm. What question are you asking in between the gaps? Are you asking what can I give or what can I get? And if you don't know the answer to that question, you probably know the answer to that question. Come on. <laughs> That's so good. Michael, I have a confession to make. Yeah. In the course of this interview, I think you just wrote the number one on my list. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow, man. That was, that was, so, go. that was, that was so good. You've been listening to Michael Jr. He's actually so. going to be at Willow Creek this Sunday. You can learn more at MichaelJr.com. If you've never been there or you don't know who he is, I honest to God cannot recommend enough that you check out his stuff. As you just listened, not only are you incredibly funny, but I think incredibly wise and, uh, and a gift of the world, man. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thanks, man. Yo, and I got a podcast. You got to tell me about the podcast, too. Oh, check out the podcast, Michael Jr. Podcast. Where, where can people find that? Off the cuff. <laughs> you don't know where to find a podcast at? I mean, That's do I just, there's like a podcast fairy or you something? You just went that... down to my nine. <laughs> I'm 86 years old. You can't, you can't hold that against me. <laughs> <laughs> it's in a pod. It's uh, cast it out. It's in a pod. <laughs> oh, it all makes so much That's sense awesome. now. Oh, Michael Jr. Michael Jr. off the cuff. Michael Jr. off the cuff. com. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. That's easily the most epic I've ever felt very dramatic like my entire life. I'm not sure that's our show right there, but that's that should be our open now, man. I feel like what we're about to say is going to highly disappoint <laughs> based on that musical introduction. Like I am wearing a cape right now, but you know, <laughs> and I am wearing tights. Just kidding. Uh, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, or on 1160hope.com. But that music is very intentional, and uh, we have Reverend Justice Carmen in the studio for the second time. Just to remind you a little bit about who he is, he's a pastor at large serving communities at Brookdale, Glen Ellen, and West Chicago Terrace. He received his BFA in communications from the University of Memphis and was a student of Reformed Theological Seminary before coming to Wheaton in 2000. And with his landlady, he uh, led Open Arms Fellowship for 12 years. He was ordained in 2008 and currently serves at the Billy Graham Center as a volunteer in their TV telephone ministry. And we talked a lot last time about you being a pastor at large, sort of this uh, idea of a pastor without a building. And one mm-hmm. of the things that we we touched on briefly was sort of your love for pop culture yes. and uh, in particular the realm of Marvel and DC and superheroes. Uh-huh. And as some people are aware, I'm not sure Brian knows because he is admittedly never <laughs> I'm, seen. I'm aware. Oh, okay. But that's where I it just... stops. That's <laughs> yes. where it that's where oh, Awareness <laughs> is where it ends for me. <laughs> Thou art a hey, comic Philistine, yeah. Brian. <laughs> we've, we've all got our strengths. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm fine with that. So, so Endgame is already making some splashes. Right. And uh, I just read this morning that it's, it's breaking and records in China and blah, blah, blah. But that, one of the things that I'm interested to talk to you about, because you have this this intersection of this call of ministry, but also this love for pop culture and comic books, 
where do you see the intersection between faith and our love for superheroes, for for comic book worlds? Like, is is there an intersection there? And what can we learn from that? Well, yeah, because you know we're human beings and we love story, right? Well, guess what the Bible is—a bunch of stories, narratives. And songs and hope and uh, sacred myths. Be careful out there. I'm not saying fiction. I'm saying myth (laughs) because we don't have all the facts, but Mm. they are from God, the Holy Spirit. Mm. It's there. Uh, The only thing I can say right off the bat uh, to address this is that if we love truth, if we love heroic sacrifice, if we love those things where fighting evil, you are going to, of course, have it. It's going to be timeless, and it's going to be scriptural at a certain point. At a certain point, when you get off script or off scripture, it won't be. Hmm. But what I see is that uh, we just love it. We love story. We know it. We hmm. know when the story's gone bad. When you see a good superhero movie, you see a, a, a meek, mild-mannered man who doesn't look like he has any power suddenly reveal himself. You go, that's awesome. And then you realize that Jesus walked the earth as a man, hmm. didn't reveal himself till his time. And then he says, who do men say I am? Right. And then he reveals himself. So hmm. we love that. And it's, it is, uh, it's actually a good thing because it means that Jesus is at work in all aspects of lives. Uh, he can't be held out. He's like a lion. He tends to bounce in. I'll stop on that, but that's what I, <laughs> I think. I, but I will say that I gotta say this. C.S. Lewis loved myth. Uh-huh. All right. Now he did not grow up with comics, but he grew up with fantasy, nineteenth-century stuff. Great stuff. That's right. He literally, when he was walking with Tolkien and Hugo Dyson on Addison's Walk in Oxford at two in the morning, they said, "Jack, don't you get it? If you read it in a story, you love it. Hmm. You love the dying God." Hmm. What Christianity is, is myth became fact. Hmm. And he went, I never saw that before. And it blew him away. So it was through myth, comics, we would say today, right? Through a mythical uh, story that actually made him start to fall in love with Christ. Hmm. Yeah, I was reading today that this new movie, (laughs) on the secondary market, there are tickets for this weekend going for over $1,000 already, which is one of the (laughs) craziest things I've ever heard, but I'm sure some people feel that way about sports games. Like, (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. Exactly. Exactly. uh, To each their own, I suppose. Um, I'm curious uh, about this intersection of superheroes and kind of fantasy and myth, and I love that picture that it helps us understand Jesus better and helps mm-hmm. us understand the story of Scripture. In what ways do you think it helps us understand ourselves better? And in what ways do we gravitate towards superhero myths because we kind of wish uh, we, we want to see that in ourselves? And like you said, mm-hmm. it's usually a common person, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Bruce Wayne is right. Batman or whatever else. Right. Uh, speak to that a little bit. Where does uh, do, do you think that's something people are looking for when they're diving into these superhero movies? I think, uh, first of all, you know, a lot of times we get into comics and stuff when we're young, right? Yep. Uh, age of 8 to 12, uh, <laughs> one gentleman said, um, our parents had gin and tonic. We had comics. So, <laughs> so we do go there for our relief from the mundane world. Uh, and then we get entranced. Mm. And then we say, wow, you know, if I work real hard, maybe I could be like Batman. He's cool. Or maybe I'll be bitten by a radioactive spider and be <laughs> Spider-Man. Or maybe I'll find out that though I'm a cool guy, actually, I have a father in heaven. So though I'm mm. a doctor, maybe I really am a son of a God. Like mm. that's what that's what uh, the whole thing of Thor is. So I believe what we like about them is, uh, first of all, there's an opportunity to say you are not 
always going to be who you are. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And secondly, uh, there's a lot out there that could, uh, well, I don't know, empower you. Are you be called or chosen, you know? Yeah. And uh, that's very uh, exciting, I think. You know, have you ever been picked for a baseball team? Not not as often as I'd like. Yeah, okay. same, same. But you know, here. <laughs> when you get voted for or yeah, elected, you yeah, know, and we yeah. have the whole doctrine of election Christianity, you know, uh, we say, you know, you got elected. God chose you, and he's yeah. revealing himself. So I think that's part of the reason we like it, you know. I think uh, there's certain heroes that are very Christ-friendly. I like to say it that way, Christ-friendly. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I find really interesting about uh, not just comics and Marvel movies, but also art of any kind, is that, you know, N.T. Wright calls them the, the echoes of the voice. C.S. Lewis calls them the, the scent of the flower we haven't yet found. And, you know, Schaefer wrote this book that, that talks about the, the different, the four different artists right. and the worldview and context from which they come from. In fact, there's the, this is really great. Uh, Bono quote, he said, every artist is a cannibal and every poet is a thief, <laughs> yes. right? Essentially yes. kind of saying every, everything that we see that's beautiful or lovely in the world is being borrowed from this narrative of God. So let's let's say Brian's a perfect example. He's like, all right, well, Marvel's not my thing. Right. But how, how can we help people better see, like, the the greater narrative of God, the greater stories and, ter- and, and parables being told with our lives all around us, even mm. if, like, Marvel or superhero isn't necessarily, like, our jam, what are, what are better ways to see that just sort of in our everyday common life? Well, um, I think the first thing to realize is if you are a Christian and you're listening to this broadcast right now, first of all, you need to know you were chosen by God. And uh, you, whoever spoke to you and got you to make the decision or whenever you did it, you were chosen. Mm. Secondly, you were chosen to have a, a, a great life. But here's the other thing. If you're going to be very Christ-like, You're going to be very meek, and you're only going to do that when you need to. And I've discovered, I have discovered that uh, if I pray and let God work in me, I end up being in a drama that I couldn't figure out. And Mm. I end up helping someone at just the right time. Mm. And so it's like the script is written, and suddenly I'm in a comic book. And my life becomes this one sequence after another, which I love, but it's really from letting the master editor uh, get a hold of me. Hmm. And then I become his character in his book. Yeah, that's uh, so does that good. make sense? That makes, that makes so much. And I think it's worth remembering, too, regardless of what right. media you prefer to consume, that God has promised right. this, to make all things new. There's yeah, a, right. there's something that's like right. the, the eternity has been Amen. planted in the heart of every man, <laughs> and every single one of us longs Amen. to see the world set right. And yeah. uh, these stories, I think, are a way to give voice to those longings. Well, this has been The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. I gotta be honest, I feel a little less epic with that one. I do. That one's more of a shimmy, more of a shake, like everyone's drinking a martini or something, yeah. dan- dancing around a 70s right. There you go. Uh, well, believe it or not, welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. My name is Ian, along with Brian, and uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. Uh, but we've been joined again in the studio by Reverend Justice Carmen. We've been talking about the Marvel Universe and Endgame is making already all sorts of waves, but drilling down a little deeper... Talking about what is it about these stories or stories in general that since it feels like the beginning of time have like spoken to the human heart mm-hmm. in a way that's different than facts and data, which are also important in their own right. But story has a way of evoking something that you were kind of alluding to. Like that's not just a 
inclination. That's like a that's like a sacred longing, right? It's right. in everybody. Built it is built in our soul, right? right? When you when you're staying at the water cooler or anything or having a cup of coffee with a friend, you are going to tell them a story. Let me tell you what happened to me last night, right? And you're going to start to tell a story. Yeah. Mm. And if you just told them facts, they'd say, what's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at 3.32 a.m., I did this. Right. What is this, a Let police me read you my ledger. Right? <laughs> right. So we live on story. We work on story. We, and, and we see it in the media. Narrative, narrative, narrative. So when, when do you make it good is when you say, let's go beyond the normal. Mm-hmm. And then we get into that super realm, mm. superhero and super villains. And we get, we get big and bigger. And it says, how big can we get? Well, the whole, the world's at stake. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> no, no, the universe is at stake. No, all of reality's at stake. And oh, that's Avengers. Those are slowly scaling it up. Hmm. And uh, you start to run right into some scripture and one thing, you know, like, hey, one will be taken, the other will be left. Yeah, right. And like, I saw that. I saw that in the Avengers movie. It said, one will be taken, the other left. Are you yeah, kidding me? Right, right. And I was like laughing out loud, but I said, oh, I hope they, I hope they resolve this correctly. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I saw it. Yeah, yeah. right. And, and I think that's something that, and we have Christians in the entertainment industry. I'm going to just throw out there real quick, Pixar. Any film done by Pixar before 19, I mean, 2011, something all the way back to 1992, a uh, lot of Christians work on them. Fabulously Christ-friendly stories. Mm. But anyway, uh, we're talking about Avengers Endgame. We're talking about Marvel and DC also a little bit, but Marvel's on the list today. So look at the characters and look at what they're doing and why they're doing them. I, I'll, I'll tell you something very, uh, I've got to wrap this out. The guy who did Doctor Strange, now I was taught as a fundamentalist Christian, you know, avoid sorcery, magic, and all together. Mm-hmm. He's a sorcerer supreme. Mm-hmm. But when they did the movie, they didn't do sorcery. They did sort of more like a super Jedi. He could do neat stuff, but it was mm-hmm. more like that. The man who advocated, who went, who went after the uh, ability to do the film and become the director is a, a graduate of Biola. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And he went after it, to, and he made a very good Christ-friendly movie because you have a very snarly uh, naturalist man who's uh, very brilliant, and he's damaged, and he has to go find spiritual truth and finds out reality is much bigger than he thought. Mm. Oh, interesting. So you don't see this right off the bat, uh, but if you get Christians who love to tell story, their worldview is going to come through it, and we're going to get infected by it, and that's a good way because yeah. Christ is present. Mm. Now. That's what, we don't know what's all going to work out. You know, <laughs> someone else can jump in and mess up the mix, and I can right. say that too. But we, I, I'm curious, what do you see as some of the issues then for Christ followers in Christian communities that fail to tell good stories? Like <laughs> what, what are the implications of a of a faith community that misses the significance of story? Legalism, yeah, because then you start dotting the i's, crossing the t's, and you don't care. You just don't care what happens. No. Uh, no, you don't. You don't look at the results. And uh, you're too, you're become become a moral cop. Mm-hmm. But if you in, are you, uh, one of the things we talked about story. I was in a screenwriters group and uh, listening to some wonderful uh, teaching, and they said story is so compelling. Uh, they had these little children, and they said, "Listen, they're they're all over the place. Let's put the tape in the machine. In five minutes, they'll be as quiet as mice." Mm-hmm. And they put the story in. And it started running, and the kids that were running around sat down and listened to the story. So I believe if we are going to truly reach the heart that God has made in us with the art that he wants us to use mm. and use it wisely, mm. we must tell story after story after story that's God-breathed and focused on him. Mm. Otherwise, the Bible should be written with bullet points, yeah. and it's not. 
I'm wondering if I was just thinking about this. So I love how this picture. Maybe I'll even go see the movie this weekend. Not this weekend because we said it's a little expensive. You don't need a thousand dollars. Yeah, wait a little bit. But but I love this concept of how these stories help us understand uh, Jesus more Mm -hmm. and and the stories of the Bible. Uh, Flesh this out with me. Do you guys think there's any danger in kind of this message of you know you might be ordinary but we can all be extraordinary? Or is that a good message that we're given to kids? I guess I wrestle with that as a preacher. I will often get up and tell people God wants to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Right, and sure. We don't always all do extraordinary things. So I wonder, uh, do superhero movies at all for you uh, pose that danger or is that not really something we need to worry about? I, hmm. I, I think uh, C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, every person you speak to, if you could see them in the future, would be a creature of unexpressible beauty mm-hmm. or, or horrific corruption. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So since you have an immortal soul, and pastors, you, you say we have immortal souls, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think I do too. <laughs> uh, a thousand, thousand years now, we'll talk about this. Hmm. And I'm going to grow and become a creature of light or a creature of darkness. Hmm. And my life here is temporary. So I believe there's something there to say. I believe we have a lot more power than we think we do. I also believe, though, we buy into the world and we are de-empowered. We are also locked into things mm-hmm. we are disenfranchised we are devalued uh because you know if you have a god who says you're worth dying for right yeah. and everyone else says no we just want to work you to death yeah right. which one do you want to listen to you oh, know so I, I so i think i think he wants to empower us mm-hmm. the acts of the apostles look just look at the <laughs> yeah. book of acts right right well i don't want to take i hear someone say this now really did say this is well, I, I don't want to take glory from God. And I laughed at him. I said, how in the world can you take glory from God? Yeah, right. You're not <laughs> that strong. That's false humility, buddy. Just start <laughs> yeah. talking about Jesus a little bit more and you'll be okay. Yeah, I just wonder why we don't take more seriously when Jesus says things like even greater things. Yeah, like we explain right. it away. And he yeah, didn't really mean yeah, that. I think yeah, yeah. Jesus was able to say that because Jesus was the most open to the spirit there ever was. <laughs> yeah, so if he's he promised is. us that same spirit, that's right, that's right. he's like, hey, I don't, I honestly don't think it was hyperbole. No, no, so no. So we explain it away though. And you know, in the last minute or so that we have left, one of the things that I find so fascinating is that we have no problem celebrating Aslan, right? right? This depiction of God as a lion. But then we tend to freak out a little bit like, oh, God is a superhero, though. We're a superhero yes. narrative. Everyone freaks out because God doesn't have lasers. You're like, he probably also doesn't have a mane either. <laughs> but because that's, Blasphemy. Like, because that's already on our shelf in our den, we yeah, like right, accept right, it. Right, right. And why do you think that – why do we have this sort of like internal rub that like, oh, no, that's not – we, t- we tend to toss around words like but, true. Like, that's well, not true. He's not, a, he's not Iron Man. Like, uh. Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think the reason is, I think the reason is, is uh, mostly that pop culture is popular and mm-hmm. it's, it's flashy. And, you know, so Jesus wouldn't be flashy like that. You know, he, it's that, 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 that's the antagonism there. Yeah. But I'll tell you really honestly. Uh, I have seen Christ empower me by the Holy Spirit to do things I never thought I'd do. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I, I was walking in Kazakhstan on a short-term mission trip. And I'm walking down the street, and I am there for Jesus, folks, and I love him. And I was just like, but it's the first time for me to travel out of my country. And I was in 12 time zones away, and I could not read the signs. Mm-hmm. And I started whistling the James Bond theme. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said something like, James Bond was, a, was nothing. I'm, I'm doing this with Jesus. And, you know, I was laughing because it's a pop culture reference. Yeah. 
but a sacred truth that touched me. Yeah. That's so good. Man, well, Reverend Justice Carmen, thank, thank you, you again for joining us in the studio talking about Marvel and comics and what it actually is telling us about our own souls and our own longing for narrative and story. Coming up next, we're going to talk about a very different story. We're going to revisit the uh, the pastor that bought his wife for Lamborghini and another pastor who's challenging him on it yep. to, to maybe live a little more minimally. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hi friends and welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, alongside, along with I can't I can't get the grammar right. Next to no, we're not next to each other though. In the same vicinity. Yep. As Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or eleven sixty hope.com. Before I go on, how good was Michael Jr., by the way? I just I was mean, thinking about that conversation could have gone a lot longer in my mind. He's I, so interesting to me. I, I could I wish people could also hear when we we could have conversations with people off air before we talked to them just to introduce ourselves and this and that, like during the break or whatever. And he had you and I laughing within like 10 seconds. He's like, yeah, he's legitimately, but like. And, but then his powerful story at the end. Right, exactly. Oh my goodness. So good. There's a podcast for you to listen to. If you didn't hear it, like this is not just self-serving going, please listen to our podcast. Like go listen to the specific portion with Michael Jr. from today's show yes. when it's up later. Yes. And you will not be sorry. And then go to his show this weekend because, man, that guy was good. Yeah, I was really, really impressed. All right, so we came across this story that's sort of a throwback to the conversation we had, yep. I think, what, two weeks ago, three Probably. weeks ago, about the same guy. The headline says, D.C. pastor challenges South Carolina worship leader who bought his wife a Lamborghini to live more minimally. What's going on here? Well, this guy named Jomo Johnson, a Washington, D.C. pastor, he posted a video on social media on Easter Sunday initiating the hashtag the Jesus challenge to live one year minimally by giving up one possession every day, uh, week or month until next Easter. And that's a great challenge. But then he went in on Pastor John Gray. So you might remember Pastor John Gray of Relentless Church in Greenville, South Carolina, received backlash for buying his wife a $200,000 Lamborghini last year for their anniversary. And he's gotten all into this whole, uh, what is it, the pastor shoegate, whatever's going on right now. Shoegate. Yeah. Preacher sneakers. <laughs> Preacher sneakers. Shoegate. I've turned so old. And so uh, he was, he was uh, preached in uh, expensive Yeezy sneakers that are like hundreds and hundreds of dollars. $5,000. $5,000. say the sentence Yeezy sneakers. I had to read it. That made me so happy. And so now there's this back and forth. You've got this one guy saying live as a, as a minimalist, and you've got another guy who's certainly not doing so, but who's <laughs> justifying it by saying, A, uh, this matches the, the clientele. I, I'm giving air quotes of people that I minister to. But more than that, he's saying, hey, the Lamborghini money, the big house money, wasn't only from my church. Instead, it was primarily from my books and from my speaking engagements. 
And so now bubbling to the surface is not, is Pastor John Gray doing something unethical? Or is he doing something, uh, taking all this money from his church and buying a Lamborghini? I mean, he's saying this is from outside my church, most of it. He's also got a pretty crazy salary from his church. Mm -hmm. Uh, Notice I just, uh, a window into my soul that I called it crazy. That's true. Um, That's true. But the question really on the table here is, is there something um, fundamentally wrong with a pastor living in excess? Hmm. And I think that's the question. And so Jomo Johnson here, I think, is uh, trying to make a point and probably trying to get a little bit of publicity for the challenge he's trying to do. So John Gray was an easy one to go at. But I think it does open the door to an interesting conversation and you and I both put it on Facebook on the, on our Facebook page and the comments to it were pretty cr- across the board. Some people like he got can do with his money, whatever he wants. And right. it was the same for the whole sneaker conversation. Yeah. Do what they want. But then again, as preachers, you know, we are, we are usually preaching stuff about money that is different than this. And so that's where the struggle becomes. And we'd really love to hear from you what you guys think of the struggle, but that's really kind of the genesis of what's bubbling up here, this conversation, uh, because then you throw in all these other prosperity gospel pastors. We've all around here been reading articles about James McDonald, all these other things, and, and money and pastors really brings out a lot of emotion in people. Yeah, and we so we have like a little bit of a private common good think tank. Oh, that's right. Cats yep. out of the bag, and, we, and uh, so sometimes we'll post stuff there before discussing it just to kind of get people's thoughts and— Holy cow. First off, I'm so grateful for our friends because we have some They're really, friends. really you got smart friends. Oh, man. <laughs> so smart. So, and, you know, a couple of them are, are my brothers that I, I just really love. But my, my friend Steph, at the end of this thread here, she said, I think this whole, <clears throat> excuse me, this whole thing reflects our general uneasiness as a culture with discussing how we spend our money. We tend to focus only on the very visible or those who are publicly acknowledged. Pastors are called to live to a different standard than normal attenders, but I think. The heart is rather to discuss what that means. Is that justified? Should we all be held to the same standard? And if so, what? Which are great questions that I don't know that I have the answer to. Yeah. Now, personally, and a lot of this has to do with my own upbringing, my own natural bent, uh, I tend to believe more that the spiritual leaders of our communities should live more simply. Mm-hmm. That and, and there's a lot of reasons I believe that. It's not just sort of like a gut sense. Like I have um, some theological positions uh, with regards to that. However, like there are other things that I find uneasy about this. Like um, this, this is again, I, I, you know, kind of painting a black pastor in a light that is unfavorable. When I know that there are plenty of white pastors doing the same thing, like yep. that has its own set of complications. But part of the the issue, though, that I find so complicated is that um, we do, I think, often want to see our our pastoral leaders live minimally in general, but often the counter-argument that I hear in environments like this is, oh, mm. no one would respect me if I wasn't wearing shoes like this, if my wife didn't yeah. drive a car like that. And it all it, the whole conversation centers around relevance then, and I think, I, I mean, again, not to oversimplify, but I didn't see in the Beatitudes where Jesus said, blessed are the relevant. Yeah. Like, there, sometimes we so glorify, oh, I won't have access to this particular people group if I'm not spending money this way. Part of me thinks, okay, well, so be it then. Yeah. Like, is that the highest aim um, that I have to have a $7 million home because I'm entertaining politicians of the highest caliber? And right. if I don't have a home like that, then they'll never come visit me and then I can't share with them the gospel. I I have some suspicion of that about that particular way of life. Now, I do appreciate, I will say, that the funds for the car didn't come from the church. But um, I don't, I, I, I still feel uneasy about the whole thing, to be honest. Yep, yep. And, I totally, uh, 
it's hard because in some ways I've never had to deal with this temptation. <laughs> like it's one thing to be it's like easier for us to have this position. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's easier. It's one thing to be like, you know what? I believe that we should be living, you know, with less or minimally. Uh, and it's another thing to say that I'm going to choose to do that. I would not say that in my life I've chosen to do that. In some ways, my line of profession has thrust me into that compared to other people in my community. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I could totally see how you could go down the path of, hey, I wrote a book. Hey, um, you know, when your and I's uh, radio show explodes and, you know, you and I have the uh, the common good yacht that we're passing back and okay. forth. You know? I'd, like to, I'd like to distance myself from that statement. But, <laughs> so be it. Okay. But you could see how it's um, how there's that temptation. I do get uneasy when I see pastors who are making a ton of money from whatever avenue and flaunting it. Uh, and then they have a pulpit because I think that it's, it is necessarily going to uh, make it very difficult to preach a lot of the things that Jesus preached, right? We always say Jesus talked about money 25% of the time, and he rarely said, get as much of it as you can, regard- just don't take it from your church. Yeah, right. And so is this guy doing something sinful? I don't know. I probably wouldn't go that far, but but it, it sends a mixed message, and it, and I think we've all preached the sermon that the love of things and materialism is a— uh, is a pathway away but from God. Can't, can't you be materialistic and have nothing? Hundred percent. You can be materialistic on either end of this financial I, spectrum, right? I think this is why Jesus talks not about money, but about the love of money. Like there's, there has been times where I've had very little in my life that I have craved the most. Yeah. And so, no, I'm a hundred percent with you. Uh, I suspect that the again, I'm not saying this from personal experience, so somebody could tell me otherwise. I suspect the more you get a taste of the good material things of this world, the more you want it. Yeah. That yeah. is my guess. Yeah. And so uh, I do, you know, we can't always worry about just the message it's sending, but the message is important. I just worry. Uh, it feels like uh, it would be hard to reconcile and then preach a lot of the things Jesus says about money. Well, I think we're showing a perfect example of a, a conversation that we don't have any easy conclusions yep. for. And yep. maybe, maybe honestly, the conclusion is none of our business. But mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a conversation worth having, even if it doesn't directly apply to us, because we are talking about what does it mean to live like Jesus in the world. Yep. And obviously, uh, I think since the beginning of time, we've been wrestling through that question. So we'd love to know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, or you can text us, 68683, and then in the message, the message body, type CG for Common Good. And then your thought, your comment, your suggestion, we would love to interact with you there. And uh, coming up next, ironically, I'm reading this on my laptop. It says, major distraction, school dumps iPads and returns to paper textbooks. I'm so fascinated to find out exactly why yep. that is. And we're going to have that conversation here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. And uh, I mentioned a little earlier, I want to talk about this story because I, I just find this trend so fascinating. And I'm seeing it in a couple of different places. It's a school that's uh, ditching the iPads, yep. and they're returning to paper textbooks. And I remember, may, I don't know, 10 years ago when I first started hearing about schools, you know, loading all their books on the iPads and yep. giving iPads for students to, you know, they'd kind of borrow for the semester or borrow for the year and thinking like, oh, my gosh, how cool. What an opportunity. That's so minimal, right? Kind of yep. to piggyback off of our last segment's conversation, like, oh, it's saving the planet and it's uh, it's really practical and streamlined. 
And it seems now a decade plus out of students uh, and schools kind of adopting this approach. They're finding some issues, not the least of which is, you know, if you have a textbook in front of you, you can pretty much guarantee that that kid's in a textbook. Yep. When kids have iPads, they're finding, and this is, you know, some of the interviews from the teachers is that they can be scrolling back and forth between different screens yep. and it, it, it could look like they're really busy when they're really not doing much at all. <laughs> and I think a good rule of thumb, as I've learned from my kids, is the generation below us or the generation below that, they know how to use the iPads and our phones more than we do. Oh, for <laughs> sure. So when you're like, nope, they're just doing their work, I checked. You're like, no, no, they know how to do it. Yeah, right. And I actually just started trying to preach from one, and I was kind of showing my age because I was terrified. There's another another pastor on staff, and I was like, <laughs> I was asking for a play-by-play, like, how do I get the notes to the iPad? And he, like, sent me... Uh, he sent me some suggestions, assuming that I had some knowledge. And I was like, cool. That's awesome. How do I make a PDF? <laughs> and he's like, oh, it's worse than I thought. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, you know, cards on the table. And that's worth noting that, you know, Brian and I are probably not the, the target demographic for this conversation. But, like, for me, having two little ones and even watching mm-hmm. my eldest, my year and a half old, um, like, understand intuitively how phones and iPads work. Part of me finds that really fascinating. Part of me finds that really terrifying. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious why you think schools are making this decision to say, hey, it might even make economic sense, but we're going back to paper textbooks because this thing's actually more problem, more of a problem than it's worth. Yeah, I think you brought up a really good point. Uh, one of the reasons is because kids can be multitasking in the middle of a school. And we all know how well we concentrate when we're multitasking, right? <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't paying attention. What was that? Says the guy on Twitter while I'm talking right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, so that multitasking thing's an issue. Uh, but, man, I didn't even know this. This article is really interesting. It said a University of Maryland study in 2017 found there was little difference in the two formats when students were asked about the general themes of a text. But the printed version made them better able to answer specific questions. The study's authors suggested print be preferred when an assignment demands more engagement or deeper comprehension. Hmm. Or if students, whether primary, secondary, or tertiary, were required to read more than one page or 500 words. Wow. They're saying literally they're starting to find in these studies that when you need to comprehend what you're reading, wow. that there's something about written word, about the, the printed page that, that we're able to better digest than in uh, on an iPad or whatever else. And I find that to be fascinating because obviously our students need to be, um, you know, when they're when they're doing these subjects, they need to be able to better understand what it is they're learning. Yeah. But man, most of us are reading our Bibles on on our on our iPads and our phones too. So there's a, there's something to be discussed there as well. Something to be thought of there. I think one of the um, the benefits of the Bible on the phone that isn't talked about enough is mm-hmm. uh, fragile pastors' egos. Because in the middle of <laughs> your right in the middle of your sermon, you see a bunch of people on their phone. You're like, I'll just tell myself they're probably on the Bible app. They're probably <laughs> reading the. Word. Everyone's on the U version right now. <laughs> like I don't think they are, but as long as I can tell myself that. When it the end of the story actually highlights another thing that I I honestly never would have thought about is just the weight in the backpack. So they're mm-hmm. saying you know load up these little kids with four or five textbooks. It's legitimately doing like long term harm yep. to their shoulders and their neck and their back. And so the the teachers are responding by saying um, we're assigning work a little differently. They can leave the textbooks here in the locker and. It's. I just find it so fascinating that in so many avenues we're like returning back to yes. some of these older methods, and uh, like this is a little bit of like hipster speak, but like 
how hipsters uh, stereotypically like their coffee. Mm. Yeah, they don't. They don't want a, a an easy Mister Coffee paper brew, right? They want yep. a, a pour over that they have to manually do themselves. Like we're seeing more and more urban gardening. Yeah. We're seeing people raise chickens. We're we're, we're seeing this sort of. I don't know if you've read any Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is this. Uh, he calls himself an agricultural theologian, That's and awesome. he still writes all of his books on a typewriter. And he, I just I find him absolutely brilliant and so fascinating. But he's also kind of a curmudgeon, you know. Like he does, I would have guessed. he does things <laughs> the old school way. Yes. But what's interesting to me is that old school is becoming modern. Old yeah. school is becoming what is current. And I don't know. Maybe this is just how history always is. But it's curious to me that that there is now like legitimate warning signs, like, hey, this technology that we thought was going to like streamline everything make us more efficient, make us faster, make us smarter is actually detrimental. And we're going back to the old methods now. I just think that that's a really interesting trend to me. Yeah. And uh, it is interesting the way things are going back, like you said, and it does raise for us with the fact that so many of our kids are on their devices, not just in school. Like, man, your kids aren't old enough yet. All of my kids, all three of my kids have devices given to them by the school. They have school-issued oh, really? iPads. To take home with them, too? All year. Wow. And then if they do stuff over the summer, they get to keep it for the summer. No kidding. Absolutely. And so, you know, there, there's and there's value that teachers put all the homework on there. Like, you remember how you and I used to leave our books in our locker and like, uh-oh, I forgot my homework. Oopsie. You can't forget your homework <laughs> right, anymore. Right. Like, it's all right there. <laughs> and it's I mean, way- I was homeschooled, so. Good point. <laughs> and so the things you didn't get to experience, man, that terror of when you left. I know you weren't only homeschooled. But yeah, I have some of that terror, terror still. Um, but still, yeah. Uh, I just think I never knew this research existed. And this is why I think it's fascinating that they're literally, this should be enough of it to say that comprehension is better mm. when with the printed word is enough to say, okay, let's go back to books. Not all, you know, there's all about swinging the, the pendulum too far. We probably sw- swung it too far towards devices. The goal is not to swing it too far back the other way. It's to find that happy medium where, where devices can be helpful and where the printed, uh, the printed page could be helpful. Something we've begun doing in our church, and I don't know if it's a good idea or not. We're going to see if it pays <laughs> off. Uh, we, like most churches, have always um, put all of our verses up on the screen Yeah, and during a service. Yeah. We bought a bunch of Bibles, put them in the backs of chairs, all of our chairs. And Scandalous. Now, Scandalous. Now we don't put the verses on the screen anymore. And we, we tell people, if you don't have a Bible, open it there. We give them the page number. On open the screen. It up so on you, the screen. So you still so, use the screens then? So on the screen, it has the reference okay. and the page number. Oh, all interesting. It's got. Interesting. And we made the decision. We want to actually just see people opening their Bibles because we're afraid that people are losing. Who knows if this is true or not? We'll find out over time. We're afraid people are losing their ability to handle the Bible. Hmm. And so some people are still on there. You know, they've, they, we don't uh-huh. tell them you can't use your phone. We just <laughs> felt like it was getting too passive on the screen and that there was something about opening and finding and underline. There was something about comprehension. I'm very interested to see if that pays off or if it just annoys people. I don't yeah, know. What, this what is, is literally something. I'm this, curious what you, what you think that something is that giving them a physical Bible will I change. I, they're, they're just felt it. it this is going to sound really bad. It just felt like something to try. It felt right. Hmm. Uh, we were getting a little worried about just. Um, we didn't have hard data, but it felt like we wanted our people to know their Bible more. Hmm. And that's, I know, a really, really big statement to yeah. make. Yeah. 
And part of that for us, an easy, low-hanging fruit was like, all right, let's have everybody open their Bible during the service. Hmm. Not because it's like we're old school and you got to, no, let's like, let's just interact with it that way and see if it makes a difference. And I don't know how we'll measure that. I don't know. We only started this like a month ago. That's what I was going to ask. Have you, seen any, have you seen any difference in the two no. months or any, what's been the feedback? I'm curious about that because students, you know, no. in this story, no. they, don't, they don't have a choice. Like, hey, we're yep. ditching iPads, you're getting textbooks. And again, people can use their iPads. We just didn't want right. to use the screen. Uh, I mean, we had, of course, one or, one or two people say, you know, like, oh, it's hard to read or <laughs> like, oh, like the Bible's print is too small. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Sure, and I, sure. we said, okay, I make sense. But for the most part, nobody has really said anything. Hmm. They haven't affirmed it or or complained about it <laughs> so they're just getting used to it like yeah. all right let's open our bibles and it's kind of fun as a preacher to hear the pages move in and this right. and that. changes the way you preach a little bit though because you got to like pause and let people get there that's and, right so it's a little bit off the subject but i think there's no, something even though there. do you do you uh, have a physical bible with you on on the stage now i do Oh, you didn't before, though. No, I used to. Uh, I mean, I would print it in my notes, but now I want them to see me open it. I'm, I'm opening with them. That's why I asked. Um, yeah, because I've had people even mention that to me. Yeah. Like when you don't have a physical Bible up there, I actually find it very distracting. Oh, you know, is that and I, right? And if I'm just referencing a screen now, not it's not a lot of people, but it is people that yep. legitimately are like, oh, th- that is meaningful, yep. which I find that's so endlessly interesting to me that people, even if they don't know how to articulate it, yep. there's something meaningful for them. They see the yes. physical Bible. And they maybe don't have any doctrinal positioning oh. or any brain science to back it up. They're like, ah, oh, there's just something, something to that. Yep. There's something to that. Yeah. So I used to print it in my notes, which is the same thing. Yeah. But now, because I'm asking everyone else to open up their Bible, I thought it was important for them to see me opening the same Bible and reading from it. So yep. we'll see. I'll keep you up to date. Yeah. I would love to hear how that goes, man. I think that's really fascinating. Yep. Well, coming up next, here's the headline. Toddlers, meltdowns, and brain development. Why parents need to ditch traditional discipline. We're going to talk about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the giggly Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. And I teed it up, and I'm a little bit frightened because, uh, well, your kids are at a different stage than mine. Yes, they are. And my youngest, he's had some tummy issues, and we haven't still totally figured it out. So I don't know that that totally fits this conversation, but I also know that some of what we're going to talk about is going to be a glimpse into my future. And uh, I'm anticipating that in the best mm-hmm. sense of the word. But the headline is Toddlers, Meltdowns, and Brain Development, Why Parents Need to Ditch Traditional Discipline. What's going on here? Yeah, talk about a lightning rod uh, <laughs> uh, type of topic when you talk about how to discipline children. Because people will always, you know, rightfully on some level say that the Bible says, you know, spare the rod, you know, this and that. And um, But what this article is uh, is saying is that research is telling us uh, that... Positive parenting methods um, yeah, are much more effective in children's brain development than negative parenting. So it says Albert Einstein once said, the most important question for us to answer is, is this a friendly universe? Infancy and childhood are when we begin to answer that question. Hmm. And so um, basically what this author of this study is saying is that so many of us parent negatively. Always, not just with no, but with yelling, but with discipline, uh, and that figuring out ways to positively uh, parent is actually scientifically better for a child's brain and more of how they are wired. And so this author asks, are you ready to embrace a positive, respectful Hmm. approach to parenting? Because this is the type of care humans are biologically wired 
to accept. And then he goes on, or the author goes on to ask this question, to answer this question, why do toddlers need meltdowns? And it says, uh, so Mother Nature, we would say God, right? Mother Nature designed toddlers with a foolproof method to release emotional overload. And what is that method? Meltdowns or tantrums. And then they say tantrums are an opportunity for us to connect and deepen the trust of our children. Tantrums are an opportunity to learn as parents and to up our game as a parent. And it's saying that you don't just let your child have a tantrum, but you walk them through it. Oh, interesting. As opposed to shutting it down. Because, again, we're just telling you what the author of this study is saying. That when you shut the tantrum down all the times, when when you're like, no, you stop that right now. That what you're doing is over time, you're emotionally stunting your child. They're mm-hmm. learning that they can't express their emotions. They can't do this and that. And so uh, what I know out there is that there are people just shaking their heads right now going, are you kidding me? Like, But it, what we want you to do is wrestle with this. This person is claiming that this is uh, biologically true, scientifically true. And so the author is saying parents need to ditch traditional discipline. Because why would we treat them harshly when they stumble through their emotional growth? And that the, the Latin origin for discipline means instruction. And so all this author is saying is there's better ways to instruct your children. And so what, at near the end, the author says children who've had compassionate, responsive, and positive parents will come to understand and self-regulate their own emotions most of the time. They'll feel secure. They'll build neural pathways within the brain to deliver soothing biochemicals that help to regulate emotions like fear and anger. They'll grow into adults who feel comfortable in their own skin and with other people's emotions so they're able to connect deeply with others. It may feel overwhelming in the moment with a young child who is melting down, but take solace in the knowledge that the effort and sacrifices you are making are monumentally Hmm. worthwhile. In years from now, your kids won't remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Yeah, that's kind of a, a timeless truth, not just for parents, but for people looking to build strong relationships or leaders or pastors or any of those things. Yep. Not less about what you said and more about how you made them feel. But I, you know, and we've talked about this a little bit. I geek out on some of the brain science. But uh, later in the article, it says toddlers build up stress hormones as they cope with the challenges of daily life, which is a powerful sentence because yep. I think we forget that toddlers face challenges. Uh, But the part of the brain which allows them to express strong emotions verbally, the prefrontal cortex, still isn't fully developed. Some are asserting that that doesn't actually develop till your late 20s. Really? Uh, This means, yeah, that toddlers can experience an intense emotion, but they don't have the ability to verbalize or deal with it. And then it later says toddlers don't enjoy tantrums. They don't intentionally throw a tantrum to to manipulate us. Tantrums are outside a toddler's conscious control, mm. which if that's true, that that changes a lot of how we even how we even look at them. Right. And so that it, it quotes uh, John uh, Bowlby, a British psychoanalyst and founder of the attachment theory. Uh, he hypothesized that healthy attachment is crucial to promote emotional regulation and it's vital for optimal brain development. Mm. And so when we are in the pattern of just shutting it down, you be quiet, you keep it under wraps or whatever, whatever our tactic yep. is, if it isn't like entering into it with them a little bit, which can be really hard to do when you've had a long day, yes. you're at the grocery store and they're having this meltdown, but we, we hinder healthy attachment, which is directly linked to synapse strength, which is exactly how the brain develops. All of this stuff is connected. And I think, mm. man, even just as a, as a newish dad yep. who 
right now is it a pretty exhausting season. <laughs> yes, he might, I had a, a good buddy come by and he like they let us uh, borrow their swing and then he brought by like two noise canceling headphones. He's like, <laughs> honestly, put these on and still care for your kid, but this will make you so much more compassionate yes. while you do. Was so brilliant because when they're screaming and it's like starting to like hurt your ears and like wow I am not the best version of Ian yep. when all of that's going on in my house and my wife is the hero because she yep. like she's in it all day long and she manages it so incredibly well like I'm so impressed by her and her ability to navigate that but yeah. I I get the tendency like nope just stop stop that right now yep. I I have much more of that. And she's much more nurturing, I think. But to see how all of that corresponds to neurological development, neuroplasticity, synapse mm. strength, and to know that there is really credible evidence that a lot of these things, particularly the prefrontal cortex and the frontal lobe, which is responsible for judgment and planning and assessing risk and decision making, that stuff doesn't develop fully until sometimes your late 20s or even early 30s. Mm. So with that in mind, man, your three-year-old has a long way to go. So yeah. to see the See a tantrum in that context, I think, is really helpful. It's just interesting, though, here, because, um, you know, having little kids and older kids, but little kids, as you're learning, there's nothing that tests your patience more. Like I used to I can't remember the number of times I felt guilty for my lack of patience and my, you know, snapping quickly at my children, like who them and my wife, I love more than anything in the world. And they could make me so angry so quickly Um at the same time, the obvious question to this is then how do you just not get run over by your children? We've all been in restaurants or in church or in, in on an airplane or whatever what it might be where a kid is just going crazy and the parent really does not. It's like the kid's running the show. Yeah, right. And so that's not what this is saying. This is just saying have more creative and positive ways to deal with it. It doesn't mean you don't remove your child when there's a tantrum going on, it doesn't mean you don't discipline or even punish your children when they're when they deserve it. It means you don't parent from the standpoint of anger and fear. Yeah. And that's what a lot of us, if we're honest, we do. We we uh, we functionally uh, try to scare our children into behavior and into following us. And that can work in the short term. But what this article is saying and the study is saying is that in the long term, that's going to stunt your child's growth and their emotional well-being and their ability to kind of self-regulate and think for themselves as they go older or get older, which is another way of saying it's going to be harder for you as they get older. Yeah. And so don't be like, oh, no, this is just, you know, snowflakes and hogwash, whatever. And, uh, you know, this is, th- this is going to play out later in their life. And so what you're really doing is you're making some deposits in your kids as a young child so that they will have the best shot to be emotionally uh, healthy as they get older. Yeah, and we'll we'll share this on Facebook too because I think this um, this is worth just reading, regardless of what side of the the table that you're at. And I think I think this last section, I I was going to respond. I just want to just read it because I think it's really encouraging and helpful. It says, "Remember, a tantrum is not a reflection on you." Let's mm. repeat that: your child's tantrum is not a reflection on you or your parenting. What is a reflection on you is your response to the tantrum. Can you find the courage? to disable generalization imprinting and cultural expectations and to be the calm in your child's storm. Mm. You cannot control another person, but you can choose your response. Take a deep breath. Close your eyes for a moment if you need to. Do whatever you need to center yourself. You are your child's compass. You are their guide, and they need to feel the reassurance that you are, are in charge, you have their back, and that they can rely on you when they feel like they are drowning in a mm. sea of wild and unpredictable emotions. Sit patiently with your child. Hold her close. 
empathize and observe. I'm like getting choked up just yep. reading that. Like that's the kind of dad that I want to be. Yes. And I know most of the time that's really, really difficult. But I know that over time with this kind of instruction, this kind of coaching, man, we can get better at managing those things with our kids or even if it's other people's kids, like how, how do we actually enter into the storm mm. with them and to be their compass, be their guide when they're freaking out a little bit. And I just think that is such a good call, such a, such a lofty goal, absolutely, but such a necessary one for, for any parent, whether you're a Christ follower or not. I just think that's good stuff. Well, you've been listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, friends. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And uh, the intro to this segment maybe sounds a little different than other segments. There's a reason for that. But first, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. But we like to, as we say, land the plane with some interweb insanity. And I don't know why I'm surprised every time. Every time. The internet never disappoints. Mm -mm. There's never been a day where we're like, well, there's no insanity today. No, no need to do this segment. And just as a disclaimer... Brian and I have not seen these stories. Our producers chose them. They chose the sound effects to go with them. So we literally read them sight unseen. We point to the booth. They play a clip that we did not know was coming. So if you find any of it offensive, uh, we'll give out their home addresses (laughs) after the segment just so you can can tell them personally. Oh, yeah, go ahead. And if you find them offensive, know deep down that Ian and I find them offensive as well. (laughs) Even if we're laughing hysterically <laughs> Just at them. part of the shit. Yeah, the good. that's a good caution. All right, All right. I'll go first. Take us. United Arab Emirates. This Ooh. is a first. Comatose woman wakes, learns it's the 21st century. No. Until June of 2018, Manira Abdullah I'm so proud of you for had last that. been conscious when mobile phones were just starting to be widely sold. Had they then been readily available, someone might have been able to call for help. Instead, Abdullah waited for hours for help to arrive after the car she was in collided with a school bus in 1991. Wow. Uh, Though the four-year-old son she reportedly shielded from impact walked away with only a bruise, Abdullah suffered a serious brain injury and spent the next 27 years minimally conscious but completely unresponsive. What? Then she opened her eyes in a German hospital room in the year 2018. It was a moment long anticipated... As she's now that same age as, oh, by Omar Weber, now the same age as his mother at the time of the crash. No way. And it goes on to say that she was, this is seemingly miraculous recovery, came after her family received a grant in 2017 to cover medication. And now she's learned. Think about that. If you only knew 1991 and now you wake up and it's 2018. What year is it? <laughs> Good. All right. Yeah, yeah that's, All right. Uh, that's an appropriate. Can you imagine? No. Like that's a that's a flight of the navigator movie or something. Yeah. That is something strange. I have so many other questions about how do her muscles still work or how to okay. Sure they work them as they go. Sure. All right. South Carolina. Eighty four year old man arrested, accused of shooting at geese from living room chair. <laughs> <laughs> this guy might be my hero. A North Myrtle Beach man was arrested over the weekend for allegedly allegedly okay shooting at geese outside his home. On Saturday, police responded to a residence in the 400 block of 36th Avenue North and found the suspect, 84-year-old Furman Clark Price. There's the name. There it is. Sitting in his living room, according to a police report. Police say uh, they cleared the resident and found a 22 caliber rifle in the kitchen. A witness said she heard several gunshots and saw Price shooting at geese in a public parking lot across from his home, the report states. Get off my lawn. <laughs> that was a good clip. These are short, but these are good. He's 84. He's more than 84, I think. Yeah. A, uh, Austria. 
Austrian. Are you, are you still with us? Yeah. yeah. No, I was looking to see. No, it says he's 84. Austrian prison. Austrian prison escapee returns fed up of life in the sun. A man who says he fled an Austrian prison over a decade ago has turned himself into police in Salzburg, telling them he was fed up with living in Spain's Canary Islands. Police said the 64-year-old carrying two suitcases went to police at Salzburg's railway station Saturday night and told them he was a fugitive. They said in a statement Monday that he told the officers he had spent the past ten and a half years in Tenerife, a popular vacation island, and wanted to return to home because Tenerife is not as nice as it used to be, and he had lived there long enough. Police verified that he had fled a prison in in eastern Austria. He was then taken to a Salzburg jail. Get busy living or get busy dying. I was going to say, this is Shawshank Redemption yeah, when they want to go back in. Can you, how much would you have to not like sunlight to return yourself back yep, in? That's he just incredible. missed his home was prison oh, at Shawshank Redemption, man. There's another story there that I'd love yeah. to dig into. All right, Virginia, man steals hundreds of gallons of grease from Burger King. Sure. sure. <laughs> yep. Police say a Central Virginia man made off with a whopper of a haul from Burger King. Hundreds of gallons of used cooking grease, but he couldn't give police the slip. Oh, jeez. Oh, there he goes. <laughs> this is bad even for me, and now faces grand larceny charges. How about that? My retirement grease! No! <laughs> Do you think Keith picks this, the, the, the clip first or the story first? I think it's sure. the clip. I did. I was right, though, just b- before we move on, that uh, that this grease can be used to make biodiesel fuel, and I have a bunch of friends who oh. converted their cars to run on this, which is really, really uh, economical, but their cars also always smell like French fries. Oh, a win-win. It's amazing. California, deputies return prosthetic leg after man loses it while skydiving. <laughs> deputies were able to return a man's leg after he lost it while skydiving. The Sonoma, Sonoma County Sheriff's Office said they got a call Monday that someone had found a prosthetic leg leg in a lumber yard. After speaking to some people at the nearby airport, deputies figured out an amputee lost his leg while skydiving the day before. They found out the $15,000 leg belonged to a man named Dion, and deputies returned it to him on Monday afternoon. Apparently, Dion joked that that this was his second lost leg while skydiving. Oh, my God. He lost his leg in a freak skydiving accident (laughs) two years earlier. He promises to make a tether and learn from this, but fully plans to stick with his passion of skydiving. Who throws a shoe? Honestly. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. Once again, the internet never disappoints. Never. We've had fun. We hope you have fun. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. or listen to us on the podcast. This has been The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.